This is a story of sound, of audio, of what we hear and how we hear, or maybe of what and how we think we hear. It's a story of innovation and invention, like the old-fashioned way, where you break stuff and then make something new out of it to see if you can make it better, that kind of invention. It's a story of music and musical things, the construction of music, the theory of music, of music that changes your life. It's a story of teamwork and how people can achieve near perfection when they work together and the kinds of things that happen when people feel passion and affection for their work. This is the story of the audio in Half-Life Alex, told by five of the people who made it happen. We started our series of interviews with the team in the summer of 2018, and we spoke over the course of the development of the game, and we continued our conversations after the game shipped on March 23rd in 2020. Hi, I'm Dave Fiza. I'm a sound designer at Valve. Dave Fiza was the first audio person to join the Half-Life Alex team at Valve. At the time, it wasn't even called Half-Life Alex. It was called HLVR. A co-worker told Dave to go talk to Robin Walker, who's worked on every Half-Life game starting with the first in 1998. Robin showed Dave a short demo of gameplay. They had like one four-second long demo of gameplay i think you like picked up a comically large key and like put it in a comically large lock (laughs) to open some door i think that was like the puzzle it was super raw but at the same time it had like a level of polish that raw things usually don't have because it has all these it had all this half-life 2 art that had been kind of like up to work in vr so it wasn't great but it was like you know, oh, that's a combine soldier rather than, you know, that's a stick figure, right? Yeah. Which is which is how games start a lot of the time is, you know, this the walls are gray and the things are gray, but there's this mechanic here. And this didn't really have any mechanics except for the comically large key. But the, the environment was kind of already promising. As a sound designer, Dave Fiza makes incredible ambiences in games. Think about it. If you walk into your kitchen right now, you'd expect to hear certain sounds. Or if you're walking in a park or in a subway tunnel, when you're walking inside or outside in a game, you expect the same experience. If a game sounds like a real space when you're just standing there doing nothing, that goes a long way towards helping the player feel like they're part of that world. Composer Mike Moraski joined the Half-Life Alex team after hearing some of the ambiences Dave was working on for HLVR. Mike says that in the early days, the opening of the game went through several different iterations. One of them started, you were on a train, but you were kind of on a boxcar, mm-hmm. right? And so you couldn't see out because you're moving, but you're in VR, so you can't, can't have stuff move. moving by you and so Dave had implemented this crazy soundscape that was just like zipping by you and it was just the coolest thing I had heard and in VR particularly it was really spectacular and that's when I was like okay I gotta work I gotta work on this like it almost doesn't matter what I do like this is gonna be really neat and really not so much because of Half-Life but because it was VR and then also because it is Half-Life. 
You'll hear more from Dave and Mike later, but there are three other members of the audio team to meet who played critical roles in the development of making a Half-Life VR game, like Lakula Shantani. I wouldn't have imagined that I would be writing code that shipped in a Half-Life game, like ever. So that's happening. Lakulish and his business partner, Anish Chandak, invented software that makes it easier to simulate sounds in digital spaces. They created it while they were in grad school together at the University of North Carolina. Lakulish and Anish called their software Phonon. Their work caught the attention of sound designer Emily Ridgway at Valve. When we first announced Phonon, out of the blue, Emily sent me an email saying, hey, this sounds kind of cool. Would you like to come up to Valve and just sh- demo your stuff and we'll demo some of what we're working on? And it took me a while to uh, convince myself that that wasn't spam. Valve ended up buying Lakulish and Anish's company, and Phonon became Steam Audio, a sound simulation tool for game developers. More about Steam Audio in a bit. As Lakulish mentioned, it was Emily Ridgway who sent him that email. My name is Emily Ridgway, and I work here at Valve as a sound designer slash audio generalist slash anything to do with audio. And she can add writer to the list. She wrote and recorded all of the Combine dialogue in Half-Life Alex. But the coolest thing Emily did for Half-Life Alex didn't have to do with creating audio. It had to do with how players hear audio. The Index headset is the name of Valve's version of the device that players wear on their heads to play in VR. If you look at the Index headset, you'll notice two speakers that hang down and hover next to the player's ears. Other speakers sit nestled inside headsets that either go inside your ears, like earbuds, or completely cover your ears in an attempt to block outside sound, but not the Index headset. So... I was like, well, why don't we just have mini speakers, hover them off the ear and just let the sound flow the way that you're used to hearing audio in everyday life. And then when we did that, then it was all of a sudden it was like, oh, my God, I'm here in VR. And Roland Shaw, another sound designer at Valve. He'll talk about all the sounds he created for the game, including sounds for creatures and monsters. The black headcrafts, the poison headcrafts that we have, that the footsteps are an opportunity to just creep you out. People see them as these giant spiders, and so you want this kind of horrible, clicky, flicky type, almost hairy-sounding footsteps in, in a way. Roland also made or recorded or implemented sound for literally thousands of physics props in Half-Life Alex. Because when you're playing VR, it's fun to try and touch stuff. When we first made a, a VR game, we made um, something called Aperture Robot Repair, where you would re- repair this um, robot in the, in the Portal universe. And what we noticed is that people would try and pick up everything and interact with it and inspect the the correct sound to come from it. So I I really wanted to meet that expectation for this game. It just made sense to me that these things rattle and shake and you pick them up and you throw them. And I feel like for stuff like the, the clips that you load into the gun, they have the same thing on them. You're manipulating them a lot. And it sounds really cool when you pick it up and you hear the bullet shake around and you slam it in and that has a cool sound too. How many sounds did you make? Do you know? There's like 4,000 physics sounds in the game. More from Roland shortly. 
But what you're listening to right now is because of composer Mike Moraski's music for Portal 2. I reached out to Mike to tell him how much I loved his music for Portal 2, and that led to our collaboration here. Portal 2 was just like very motivic and it was uh, it was more musical really at the end of the day you know the the character structure the whole thing was almost operatic in nature That operatic musicality of Portal 2 works perfectly in that universe, which presents itself as sterile and proper and as this placement of human next to machine. But the Half-Life universe mixes up the human and the alien. It's more organic, almost messier and grungier. In the first Half-Life game from 1998, and every other Half-Life game until Alex, you play as Gordon Freeman. He's a theoretical physicist who works for the Black Mesa Research Facility somewhere in the desert of New Mexico. Gordon has a colleague named Eli Vance, who ends up becoming an important character in later Half-Life games. His daughter's name is Alex, and that's who players control in Half-Life Alex. In the Half-Life timeline, Alex takes place between the first game and Half-Life 2. You know, the story goes that Gordon, you know, as part of the Black Mesa research project, um, opens a portal into this, you know, alien universe. And it lets this alien universe in, right? And you've got, so you end up with like these alien creatures and monsters and and, in Half-Life Alex, Flora, you know, like all kinds of stuff from the Zen universe is now mixed, right? Combined with the human experience, right? Everything in Half-Life is sort of this mash of alien, you know, mixed with human. When Gordon Freeman's experiment failed opening the rift, that caught the attention of the Combine, a giant empire that exists in multiple universes and dimensions. So they come here to now pilfer from our, you know, basically it's, you know, it's the dark forest problem. They discover us. So now they're going to come take from us. But the combine, quote unquote combine, their whole thing is that they combine, they steal not just uh, resources, but they also steal concepts and, and creatures and things. And they combine it with their technology, which is sort of this weird 3D printing technology and create uh, like alternate copies you know so the combine soldiers are part human but part like 3d printed combine mechanics right again it's this idea of two disparate things kind of combined together in this weird space and when you think about like the head crabs right they they take over a host and and it becomes this combined thing 
So you've met five members of the audio team integral to sound in Half-Life Alex: Composer Mike Moraski, sound designer and hardware engineer Emily Ridgway, software engineer Lakulish Antani, and sound designers Dave Fiza and Roland Shaw. Here's their story. Chapter 2 starts with Roland Shaw to learn about the monsters and the objects that appear in Half-Life Alex. Roland begins by explaining some of his responsibilities for HLA. I am working on uh, creature sounds, physics sounds, supporting the, those choreo scenes, the scripted sequences, some other interaction sounds which are they're related to the physics sounds in that they are interactions with physical objects, so fairly boring things like drawers, cabinets, lockers, um, and interact levers and things like that. And Roland loved the original headcrab sounds from the first Half-Life games, but he still needed to replace them for the new game. It took him a few tries, and he wasn't satisfied with his first attempt. So the, the early headcrab sounds I, I listened to recently, and I hate. I hate them. <laughs> but I also kind of understand that they're, you know, they're part of a process that represent early experiments in trying to replace the legacy material it was important to maintain a consistency in the sounds from the original Half-Life games. Sounds are part of the vocabulary of a game so that when you hear this sound, no matter what Half-Life you're playing, you know what's coming. Also, it turns out that people become fond of sounds in games, whether they're scary or not. We were trying to use as much of the old material as possible, and particularly content that people remember fondly or has uh, evokes an emotive response from people and sometimes I don't find that out until I've removed it and people who worked on the original Half-Life game say hey you took this thing out and I remember it well and it's Half-Life and it's really valuable to have those people here. It gets more complicated with say um, the creature sounds because a lot of those sounds are quite iconic. A lot of those sounds are really old uh, technology is obviously quite different now. The actual quality of the audio files has not aged particularly well, but the original design intention is fantastic. Um, and just incredibly alien, very abstract, and often threatening without directly being aggressive. I think it's a really impressive achievement with those sounds. So I'm trying to take those and I use various tools, plugins, use EQs and exciters, and layer those with new sounds as well. And if I get something that's kind of in that vein of alien abstracts, but not overtly like over the top threatening and screechy, then I'll give it a try. I'll see what people say. It's a big challenge, um, but I don't consider myself a professional unless I do hard things. So I'm really glad I have this opportunity to work with that material. Headcrabs basically look like square skin pillows with four legs. Uh, the front two of which are long and spindly. And they're terrifying, for sure. But when they're just hanging out idly, they can kind of be cute, honestly. But so early on, I was getting some feedback that some of those sounds, like the idle and grunt-type sounds, were, were too cute and not really alien enough, which is strange because I, I, I have reacted to that feedback early on. And then right at the end of the project, someone <laughs> said to me, oh, I wish the head crab sounded cuter. So I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> head crabs launch at a human head and attach to it with their giant mouths. If a head crab jumps at you, there's this 
very tight fall off sound of like a slobbering mouth that's just constantly playing as it's flying at you. So it's this horrible, like, oh my God, it's a slobbering thing that comes. Because that's all it is, really, is this flying mouth. And then I kind of took, took the mistakes of the previous iteration and then played around at home, just creating some weird click sounds with my mouth, processed those, and was able to use those to push the the more subtle idle and grunt sounds into like an alien territory rather than just a cutesy type thing. Roland had no intention of being a sound designer when he was growing up. When I left school, I originally wanted to be a painter. I thought I was going to become an artist and move to London, become a successful painter. I also was in a band and we went to a recording studio and that kind of flipped a switch in me. So I, uh, learned track laying and sound design and in the evenings I would record bands, work with local artists and just learn the studios. So by the end of basically working my butt off on my master's degree, having side jobs to pay for equipment um, and just to pay my way generally in life, I had a demo reel um, and a, a master's degree and I applied to a job at Spicy Horse Games in Shanghai. That's American McGee? Yes, he, he built quite a unique studio out there with um, people from all over the world. Uh, Roland worked on Alice Madness Returns while living in Shanghai and working for Spicy Horse Games. At the end of the project, Roland decided to leave Shanghai and look for other video game audio work. Had played pretty much all of the, the, the Valve games on offer. I was a, I was a fan. Um, I didn't feel like it was likely somewhere like that would interview someone like me with my level of experience uh, but I polished up my demo reel and made some tweaks to make it very applicable just to Valve. After a bit of time and an intense interview period Roland got hired at Valve. I asked him if it felt strange to be so young when he got hired at one of the most sought-after companies to work for in the gaming industry. I'm not one to say that I'm particularly proud of anything that I may have achieved. I still believe that pride comes before fall and in karma in some sense as well. Um, but I did feel like I had um, sacrificed a lot in my life and worked very hard, um, particularly whilst I was at university, to make the most of the opportunities that were available to me. And that not necessarily that I deserved this, but that I could see why it happened. And perhaps that Valve had made a mistake as <laughs> well. They definitely didn't. A few years before Half-Life Alex, Valve made its first VR game called Aperture Robot Repair. Roland said he and the other sound designers learned a lot from that experience, like how much players love picking up and interacting with objects in a VR game. When we first made a, a VR game, we made um, Aperture Robot Repair, where you would re repair this um, robot in the, in the Portal universe. And what we noticed is that people would try and pick up everything and interact with it and inspect the, the correct sound to come from it. So I really wanted to meet that expectation for this game. It just made sense to me that these things rattle and shake and you pick them up and you throw them. And I feel like for stuff like the, the clips that you load into the gun, they have the same thing on them. You know, you're manipulating them a lot. 
and it, it sounds really cool when you like pick it up and you hear the bullet shake around and you slam it in and that has a cool sound too. How many sounds did you make? Do you know? There's like 4,000 4, physics sounds in the game. In addition to the 4,000 physics sounds Roland made for Half-Life Alex, he also made sounds for monsters, the creatures of Half-Life. In the timeline of Half-Life, Half-Life Alex takes place between the first game and Half-Life 2. Even with its place in between existing games, there are a few new monsters in Alex. Players spend quite a bit of time in Chapter 7 trying to avoid a hulking blind zombie with excellent hearing named Jeff. Roland was responsible for all the sounds that came from Jeff, his footsteps, any sound that Jeff made from his movement, and Jeff's vocalizations. Well, one of the early versions of Jeff was that he was actually kind of a robotic character. And the reason he couldn't see is that he had a huge piece of rebar stuck to his face. And so we went quite far down the road of designing sounds around that idea. So there's some examples of those kind of robotic type vocalizations, just like synthetic sounds and things like that, that I thought sounded like vocalizations. Um, But then he decided that they wanted him to fit into the, the Zen environment more. And so he became part of the kind of world building in a way that, that, that things like in the level, we were just adding more and more organic, I don't know if you'd call them characters, but the environment was becoming a lot more Zen infested. Uh, we decided that uh, Jeff would be better off as some kind of creature that had maybe grown out of this infestation. So yeah, there's some initial organic sounds that I had worked on there. And all I'm doing at that stage is kind of scoping out the length and shape of the sounds using some uh, samples of, of big cats, like lions and tigers and things like that. So it's really early, just getting that stuff in the game and kind of figuring out how long and what type of sounds that we, we would need. And from there, the next step was we'd confirmed that this, this was the road we were going to go down with Jeff. Both Roland and fellow sound designer Dave Fiza are constantly making recordings in their free time. Whether they set up mics in their backyards overnight to capture planes flying over or they take microphones underwater to capture the sounds of ocean life. For Blind Zombie Jeff, Roland ended up using some recordings of orcas, killer whales, from Dave Fiza. I began experimenting with different types of animal source material. For example, uh, pigs came into play at that point. Dave had some really good recordings of some orcas that he'd made. I used those too. Jeff, uh, before he was a zombie, he was a worker for the Combine. He got infected with an alien fungus, and now his head, like, opens and closes, revealing a couple of mouths. He'll attack anything he hears in really unpleasant ways, and a huge feature of his attacks emanate from his head. He has this huge kind of mouth that's actually... It used to be where a human's head was, that's kind of split in half, and it opens and closes, and it's this big, physical, meaty, slappy thing 
So one of the studio recordings I'd done for that is I went and bought a couple of steaks at the local Safeway. Steaks that are just enormous. I don't think you could buy them in the UK. They're just so big. And a big jar of mayonnaise. And you get these, you know, like you set the steak down and put a layer of mayonnaise on it. And then you can kind of slap the other steak down onto it. But the best part about it is when you peel the top steak off nice and slowly and you get some, some nice microphones pointing right in there. And uh, that sounds nice. And so when the, the creature kind of opens his mouth, you get this very like sticky, meaty, visceral, horrible thing going on. Yeah, so it, it added a lot to that. Zombie Jeff wasn't the only creature to have food as a source of sound. The barnacles in Half-Life are alien creatures. They're attached to ceilings, and they have long tongues that hang down. They're basically like a mouth on a ceiling, and if you touch the tongue, you get pulled into the barnacle. When a barnacle dies, it (laughs) grossly disgorges the contents of its stomach. A friend of mine had a birthday party and had offered to cook. It's like pasta salad. So I thought, you know, it's filling. It's, I'm going to do a vegetarian version of it so everyone can eat it. And at the end of it, we'd barely made a dent on this pasta salad. And so I decided to, to use it for this, this character we have who goes back in uh, the Half-Life world a long way, the barnacle. So when, when those die, they kind of reject the, the contents of their stomach just down onto the floor. So I'd been playing around with like uh, splashy, wet sounds and things like that, but that wasn't quite satisfying enough. I wanted it to sound like those undigested pieces. It's kind of chunky. And so I'm looking at this pasta salad, kind of sloppy and messy and gross, so I'll use this. So I did. I would just pour it out onto a, onto a towel I set up in my garage uh, and record it there and repeated that process. And that ended up forming part of that sound for the for the barnacle. Uh, One of the new creatures in Half-Life Alex is called the Reviver Head Crab. In the game, Alex calls it a lightning dog. I was pretty happy with the uh, the Reviver Head Crab, who people call Lightning Dog. Um, I think Alex calls it Lightning Dog in the game as well. Um, it's a brand new creature, um, and it had to fit into the the Half-Life universe, be unique has a range of like behaviors and personalities that are brand new, doesn't move like anything else in the game, uh, has abilities that are different to anything we've seen in, in Half-Life, and uh, shoots lightning all the time, like huge bolts of crazy alien lightning. So, so there's a lot of sound design on, on that creature, and I'm, I'm very happy with how it turned out. And I'm very happy that they called it Lightning Dog. And Roland made footsteps, too, for creatures and also for Alex, the player. Footsteps are great for just telling people where stuff is. (laughs) The Charger is this giant combine soldier, kind of a variation on the regular soldiers, and you kind of need to know where he is, and so he has this very loud deep footstep but there's also a a sharp clink over the top of it as well so that the deep bass doesn't get lost in the mix the the black head crabs the poison head crabs that we have 
that the footsteps are an opportunity to just creep you out. People see them as these giant spiders, and so you want this kind of horrible, clicky, flicky type, almost hairy sounding footsteps in, in a way. But they're very light, and that makes them seem agile. Oh, and the player footsteps as well. I think I ended up making those a little heavier than I normal normally would for a first-person game to try and take into account the idea that it's you and not an abstraction of you. Roland worked on audio in the cutscenes, cutscenes also called cinematics or choreo scenes. And just like the rest of the game, people like Roland need to decide which objects and events need to be heard by the player. The first time I see a cutscene, if I if I'm hearing it without dialogue, that's my primary concern: is where is the dialogue? Sound I designers have- use special audio cues to help players understand dimensions. For instance, the sound of a pipe dropping into a deep hole. So when Alex is trying to save her father from falling. He's hanging from uh, from some metal debris that's hanging down over an abyss, and she's trying to reach out and well, the player is trying to grab them and save them. And the way it plays out is that that metal piece that he's clinging to snaps with a loud sound. Alex screams. And then after just a brief moment, you hear the sound of the, the metal that's fallen clanging somewhere below. You can't see it. Um, and then you start to hear this, this kind of magic... Um, sound that Dave made was is, is Eli is saved by a Vortigon. And we could have put the metal clanging sound earlier, but it would probably be lost under Alex screaming, or you put it later, but then there's no beat before the surprise of the fact that Eli is saved. And so where, where it is right now kind of elongates the drama of the moment that when Eli falls comes right after when Alex screams. And then it provides this moment of kind of disbelief as this character core to the franchise and this story seems to have been killed. It also stays out of the way of the the magic effect too. So that's something where we wanted to get some a sound in there and there's actually an opportunity to add something rather than take something out. The lead designer for Half-Life Alex, Robin Walker, gave an interview talking about the tools that Roland and his colleagues had to make the audio for HLA. There's an article from an interview that Robin Walker gave that says, like, the audio team has been given superpowers on this project with the level of control that we have. And I don't disagree with that. It's become ridiculously easy for us to create complex behaviors as we see fit. It's very easy. And it had to be as well, because this is a very ambitious project. One of the superpowers the audio team at Valve has is called Steam Audio, co-invented by Lakulish Antani. In our next chapter, you'll learn about Lakulish and Steam Audio. I'm Lakulish Antani. I work on Steam Audio at Valve. Steam Audio is our spatial audio solution. So what that means is it's a set of technologies for placing sounds inside a virtual world. So if you're in VR or just in a regular game like Counter-Strike and you have sounds that are being emitted from different places in the game, you want them to feel like they are in the game and not sort of layered on top like a soundtrack. 
So what spatial audio involves is figuring out where sounds are coming from, how they interact with the environment, what things occlude the sound, what things reflect sound, and sort of spatializing, positioning, and just mixing all of that to make it sound like the sound is in the space with you. So that's sort of a high-level overview of what spatial audio is. And Steam Audio is a software tool that does spatial audio. Before Steam Audio became available, game developers already could inform players about where sounds were coming from in their games. Before Steam Audio, we'd all played games where you could hear the difference between something in front of you or behind you, to your left or your right, and so on. There already were software solutions for developers to do that. Pretty much every spatial audio solution, including Steam Audio, does one thing particularly well, which is how you model positioning of sound. So if you know that a sound is coming from a particular direction relative to you, that can be modeled quite well and everybody can do this. But Steam Audio models sound propagation. For example, if you hear a sound, like a glass of water drop to the floor behind you and to your right, how does your body physically affect how you hear that sound? A a better example, think about a honeybee, a honeybee flying around your head, and how the sound of the buzz will change as it moves around your head. At times, the buzz will seem louder in one ear than the other. The tone, the pitch, the volume of the buzz changes because of how it reverberates off of your physical body. And the other cool thing about Steam Audio is that it configures all of that in real time as players are moving through an environment. It models sound propagation. So that is the whole part where sound interacts with the environment. So occlusion, reflections, all of this simulated in real time as you play. So as things change, the sound kind of reacts to that. And it is simulated based on what you actually see. So what the designer builds into the level, that directly influences what is heard. In order to make audio sound like we expect audio to sound, Steam Audio uses something called HRTF, which stands for Head Related Transfer Function. It's a model of how the physics of the human head affect the sounds coming into human ears. So the way people hear is when you're talking to me, the sound waves coming from you are bending around my head in different ways and reaching my ears. And the differences in how they reach my left and my right ear are used by my brain to position the sound. And so HRTFs kind of recreate that. So if I tell an HRTF, okay, make it so that the sound is coming from this particular direction, like maybe above me and to my left. So it's going to apply all of those filtering and it's going to sort of fake it so that the sound reaching your left and your right ear is appropriately modified to fool your brain into thinking that the sound is actually above you and to the left. Steam Audio also adds physics-based reverb. Before Steam Audio, a sound designer would need to individually set reverb for each room or space in a game. So if a player walks from an outdoor courtyard into a front lobby that leads to an empty warehouse, each of those spaces would need individual attention from a sound designer in order to make those spaces sound as you would expect them to based on their size and location. 
Audio designers apply digital filters to make those areas sound realistic. But Steam's physics-based reverb does that automatically. There's a feature of Steam Audio that's called physics-based reverb. So when you're going through a space in HLVR, you want it to sound like an actual space. So if you're in a big, empty cavern, then it should sound like you're in a cavern. If you're outside on a city street, it should sound like that. For Half-Life 2, it was done in a certain way where you, the designer would say, okay, in this spot, we're going to apply this filter, and in that spot, that filter. And it's a very manual process. Steam Audio can do it kind of like in an automatic way where you just say, okay, well, here is the entire level. Steam Audio will just take that and figure out what every part should sound like. And it will be a pretty good first guess. So the designers don't have to do as much work to get everything sounding right. And that right there is one of the biggest advantages to Steam Audio. It's efficiency. Lakulish and his business partner, Anish Chandak, wanted to cut down on the amount of time it takes audio designers to make environments sound like they're supposed to sound. For instance, visual artists have software tools to make lighting and shadows in a scene, rather than needing to attach light or shade to every single object in a scene. When you're doing the uh, visual effects and the lighting for a game level, you just say, okay, here are my lights, just figure it out, figure out where the shadows are and all that kind of stuff. So our philosophy in this is basically to bring the same workflow to sound and to environmental effects for sound that the visual artists have. Sound designer Emily Ridgway says she was slightly skeptical about how Steam Audio could accurately deliver the emotional impact of audio. I think me and like the rest of the audio team, especially the creative side of the audio team, were pretty skeptical that accurately physical model reverb was what we kind of wanted. We didn't doubt for a second that it, it would be possible because of the engineers that work on it, and Anish and Lakulish. But we were skeptical it would it would just automatically deliver the uh, emotional effect that we wanted that you know reverb and space can can bring to an area. And oftentimes, you know, when we're if if we're just baking reverb into a file, we're sort of thinking about the space that the the sound is coming from for sure. But really, we're thinking about like the emotional impact of the reverb just as much. Yes, the emotional impact of the reverb. You know, a classic example would be if you think of like church acoustics. Part of the reason churches have those acoustics, those famous huge long reverb tails, is because they make the speaker sound godly. You know, that has a huge emotional impact to it. And it feels like someone's bigger than what they really are, which you can see in the context of a church is super important. And for us as sound designers, we just, you know, we obviously don't need a, a we don't need architects to make it sound like that. We just turn up a, like a reverb parameter. <laughs> at a dial and then we have it. And so we're used to controlling reverb like that to achieve like the emotional goals that we need. But as you'll learn shortly, Emily already knew Steam Audio was a fantastic product. But the fact that sound designers had spent so much time in the past crafting reverb for individual spaces and then just suddenly not having to do that anymore, 
a piece of software replacing humans who are attempting to create emotional responses with the way they craft their audio. It's understandable there would be skepticism. And so to have like this perfectly physical simulation where it's like, no, no, you don't need to touch any reverb dials. All you need to do is we're just going to measure each room that the player is in and the, the sound objects are in, and we're going to calculate the correct reverb for that room, and then you won't have to do anything. We're just like, yeah, but that's not really as cool and all. <laughs> but that's not, you know, we want to make, like, our reverb is a tool we use to make people feel things. So I don't know how that's going to work out, but let's just try it and see. And so, you know, we did that, and it just sounded so good. <laughs> we were like, I was just like, ah, you know what? No, this is, this is totally fine. And he just saved us, like, three months worth of reverb tuning. So exactly how does Steam Audio do all of that? How does Steam Audio know how to make a place sound real? What we do is we analyze the space. So if you're in a cavern, we're going to analyze, okay, if a sound was played here, how would it bounce off of all the walls and the rocks and whatever? And we extract that information and save it along with the map. So when you're actually playing the game and you make a sound in that cavern, it's going to be filtered based on what our physics-based reverb says it should sound like. And that's where kind of the whole workflow side comes in, which is you don't have to spend as much time tweaking individual reverbs. It's Most of it will be just you click a button and it's all done. Yeah, so I guess that's the biggest win from, from Steam Audio. There are other benefits to Steam Audio. Basically, you get a lot of smooth variations. So as you walk from inside the cavern to outside, that variation of how the spaces sound will be smooth and it'll be automatic. Uh, nobody has to say, okay, well, this is the cavern reverb, this is the outside reverb, and now I have to author a curve that transitions from one to the other. None of that. It's just automatic. I mentioned that Lakulish and his business partner, Anish Chandak, invented Steam Audio when they were in graduate school together, although it wasn't called Steam Audio back then. We were co-founders in a company called Impulsonic. So we started Impulsonic with the goal of creating what is now called Steam Audio and what was then called Phonon. It was exactly what Steam Audio is, uh, but just a different name. And um, that in turn came from research that we did while at grad school at uh, the University of North Carolina. While Lakulish and Anish were working together on Phonon, Emily Ridgway was working at Valve as a sound designer. She read about Phonon and wanted to learn more about it from Lakulish and Anish. When we first announced Phonon, out of the blue, Emily sent me an email saying, hey, this sounds kind of cool. Uh, would you like to come up to Valve uh, and just... Sh demo your stuff and we'll demo some of what we're working on. And it took me a while to uh, convince myself that that wasn't spam. Both Lakulish and Anish moved to Seattle from North Carolina after Valve bought their company, Impulsonic. But Lakulish's relationship with Valve goes back to childhood. For someone who has kind of grown up playing all of the Half-Life games and is pretty familiar with the Half-Life universe, one of the things that sticks with you for not just Half-Life, but many games is kind of the, the sonic environment of that game. There's like individual sound cues or just how some particularly significant areas in the game sound. And 
when you play Half-Life VR and you listen to some of those same sounds or some some of those same characters, it feels great, especially when you know that, hey, it's like my code that's making it sound as awesome as it does. And since Steam Audio can be used by anyone for any game in development, Lakulish's code is the reason a lot of games sound as awesome as they do. Because the tools are getting better, the tech is getting better, and we're able to deliver much more interesting experiences in the same universe. And it's uh, really great to be part of that. Lakulish says the benefits of Steam Audio are easiest to hear when you're wearing a headset. And while Steam Audio became the innovation in audio software, Emily Ridgway was in the process of designing new hardware, a new set of speakers, or floating headphones, that would be a part of the Index VR headset that players can wear to play Half-Life Alex. The floating headphones is something that I designed here as a prototype and is being incorporated into our HMD. HMD. Head-mounted display. More on the head-mounted display called the Index Headset in a moment. But both Emily and composer Mike Moraski talk about how 3D audio is really misunderstood. Way back at the, at the dawn of VR, the VR guys came to us and were like, we need the, the VR headset of audio to happen. And there was a lot of confusion about, and I think this is still true, to be totally honest, there's a lot of people working in VR who don't understand that 3D audio existed before VR. Speakers and headsets have existed for decades that simulate the placement of sounds so that listeners think sound is coming from a specific location. It was really frustrating for me when I joined the VR team here at Valve. And, you know, there are a bunch of, like, super smart people on the team here, obviously working on VR software aspects and hardware aspects alike. And they would come to me with this amazing revelation that they'd had that finally we get to do 3D, quote-unquote, 3D audio. This is like in 2014, and I'm just, as, as someone who's specialized in 3D audio their entire career, having someone come up to you and say like, hey, guess what I just discovered? We can do, we can finally do 3D audio now in VR. I'm just like, um, all right, let's, let's have a seat. I got a bit of backstory to fill you in on. We're going to go back to 1994, and we're going to load up Quake, and we're going to do this from the start. It's been around, it's a video game thing, right? Like, we've been doing 3D audio for a long time. It's just suddenly there's kind of a higher requirement for high-resolution spatialization. And so all of a sudden, we have all these people coming at us, like, saying, we need this, we need that. And so Emily and I spent a whole bunch of time listening to different demos and talking to different companies and kind of just getting to the bottom of, like, what is 3D audio and, and whatnot. It actually became a really good thing because it was forcing people that had never thought about sound before in, in an immersive context to start thinking about sound. So I stopped getting annoyed at everyone and kind of got behind it and embraced their curiosity in, in 3D audio and also was like, okay, okay, you know, this is, it's really great to have the support of, of your team when you're working on a thing. And so if I was saying, you know, I'm working on 3D audio, I'm evaluating all these binaural renderers for use in our VR applications, the VR team at least would be super excited about that. Discussions and misunderstandings about 3D audio aside, 
Headphones have never been perfect. Stereo and surround headphones that cover your ears are doing a lot of simulating of sound to make things sound real. Simulating sounds that are cut off from ear to ear. And Emily wanted to make all of that better, which led to the creation of a new piece of hardware, a set of speakers that float alongside the VR Index headset. They don't touch the player's ears. They hang right next to them, unlike any other headset before it. Designed, prototyped, and invented by Emily, even though she never set out to create new hardware. I wasn't even thinking in the domain of hardware or software. I was just thinking, like, what is the dream? What is the dream of immersive audio? And what does it mean to be immersed in audio? What should that feel like? Like, have I ever felt like that? In, have I ever been immersed in audio in my life? I mean, what's the closest I've ever come to that? Emily was able to remember an experience she had when she was a teenager. I used to do this thing when I was like 13, 14, where I would take my parents' ghetto blaster slash hi-fi sound system in like, I don't know, 1995, 1996, whatever, and I would turn the speakers in to face each other and then just like lie in the middle. And I just have that memory of just being like, oh my God, this is so much better because now it feels like I'm on the stage with the band as opposed to I'm in the audience listening to the band, which is how, you know, stereo speakers present themselves in a, in a ho- like, homeroom, home hi-fi sort of setup. I remember being really excited by that back then as a kid, of just being like, yeah, this, like, this sounds great. And it sounds different than headphones do. Emily thought of a really cheap and easy way to test if she remembered correctly, if audio really would sound better if there weren't headphones surrounding and touching someone's ears. Yeah, I immediately went to Officeworks and bought a $10 pair of quote-unquote flat panel speakers (laughs) and mounted them to the side of a skateboard helmet. She took a couple of pens, ink pens, taped them to the side of the helmet, plugged them in and heard right away that she was right. This was how the world should hear Half-Life Alex. Well, really, all audio. I was like, well, why don't we, <laughs> why don't we just have mini speakers completely unisolate left and right channel, hover them off the ear and just let the sound flow. <laughs> just let the sound flow around the head the way that you're used to hearing audio in everyday life. And then when we did that, then it was all of a sudden it was like, oh, my God, I'm here in VR. Like the sound actually sounds like I'm actually in the virtual space now. Composer Mike Moraski says the new speakers were instantly successful. I've never seen anything quite so cut and dry from a playtest perspective. Like Emily just took a skateboard helmet and slapped some speakers on it. People loved it. Everyone we played it to was just like, oh, wow, this is so different. We got really good playtest feedback. Emily explains exactly why such a small change ends up making such a huge difference in the way audio sounds. I was able to be like, oh, I know why that sounds better, because you're allowing the left ear to hear what the right ear is hearing. You're not isolating the channels. Like, Hmm. as soon as you isolate left and right channels of audio, all of a sudden you have to simulate the propagation of sound as it flows around the face from one ear to the other, around underneath the chin, bouncing off your shoulders, and you have to simulate all of that stuff. And the simulations are good, but they're not close to real life yet. There's no doubt it's a remarkable achievement what Emily Ridgway discovered and created in the Index's floating off-ear headset. But Emily's main gig at Valve is working on the PvP first-person shooter Counter-Strike, 
also called CSGO. She's the sound designer for CSGO. Counter-Strike is like my favorite game here at Valve to work on, my favorite team, and it's also my favorite community. And Counter-Strike is a perfect match for someone so dedicated to 3D audio. So 3D sound is really important in Counter-Strike, um, the ability to know when you're, where your enemy is, uh, and that is also very important in VR. So there's a lot of uh, overlap between those two different areas here at Valve, so I try and overlap my work in both of those worlds as much as I can. And it's, it's busy and it's, it's fun. One of Emily's first projects with Counter-Strike was to update the sounds in the game. She really quickly learned that the online community of Counter-Strike fans have strong opinions about the way the game sounds. I think the first sound that I ever changed in Counter-Strike or I ever like quote-unquote updated was the sound of the knife hitting the wall. Like if someone equips a knife in Counter-Strike and they whack a wall, it makes a particular sound. And I was just like... Yeah, this is a this is a piece of low hanging fruit for me to make sound really good, um, and just to test the waters. And I updated the knife sound, <laughs> and the outrage on Reddit was significant. But someone had to update the sounds. The game was first developed in the late '90s. It was actually a Half Life mod, and it needed improvement. Here's Mike Moraski. You know her work on CS:GO, which was an incredibly challenging thing to take on that community. And I say take on a community because people get very uh, invested in sounds and the meaning of a sound and and just sort of their um, sort of integration of that sound into their gameplay for her to go in and improve the sounds in a way, you know, such that the community accepted that they got better sounds was a super huge feat. And they got great sound, you know what I mean? Like the the outcome of her work was, you know, amazing. But the Counter-Strike community did notice when she changed that tiny knife sound. People were fairly shocked and very surprised that someone would dare do such a thing. So, and I wasn't really afraid of that because I think that the improvement was noticeable and the community came to, you know, the, the community would do before and after sort of comparison videos of Counter-Strike, mm. uh, the old sounds, the new sounds. But my goal with that was to basically just get them used to change. So, you know, it didn't have to stay, especially the sound in Counter-Strike didn't have to stay in this, like, 1998 uh, quality bar, and it could still maintain um, the iconicness of its original sounds, but also be improved at the same time. That community feedback has become vital to Emily's work on Counter-Strike. I don't know, they've just got me wrapped around their finger so hard. I just want to make them happy so bad. I love Counter-Strike. Yeah, again, I wouldn't classify myself as a competitive first-person shooter loving gamer but Counter-Strike is just in a class of its own like in game design and the community and it's it's an honor it's a real it's a real honor to be a part of that project it's actually so underestimated I think in the gamer public's perception of just how big that title is Um, so yeah it's a real honor to be a part of it. With her many achievements in game audio, you might assume Emily always wanted to work in audio. But just like Roland Shaw and his initial desire to be a painter, Emily also had different aspirations when she went to university in Australia. I grew up wanting to be a famous jazz musician. Uh, Actually, no, I grew up wanting to be a fighter pilot. Actually, I grew up wanting to be a national parks ranger, and then a fighter pilot, and then a jazz musician. So I have a degree in jazz performance. That was what I studied at university. 
when I was going through university, Sound of Music for Games wasn't even a thing. Like, it was uh, not even a, a course that you could study, or a career path for that matter, that people were really being trained for. So the closest thing was sound for film and TV. I did some classes in that and I just really fell in love with how much power sound has and I found that to be completely, like, people completely underestimated that power and I found it very satisfying to, like, be the person that adds the sound to the visuals and completely changing the way, completely changing the message that the audience walks away with. Emily played saxophones and other woodwind instruments, but it didn't take her long to realize she just did not want to be a professional jazz musician. To be a professional jazz musician, especially in Australia, especially in Brisbane, I don't think it was actually a possible career path. I think you needed to be, you know, it was pretty obvious that you would be a music teacher. That's what most of the students graduating from my degree would kind of end up becoming. And I just felt like I didn't hadn't seen enough of the world to actually feel like I could be a legitimate teacher of things. <laughs> she had one of those aha moments where she realized she could not take the path she wanted to take and she needed to make a change in her life. I guess I just had a realization that I was maybe 30 decades too late for that career path. So I was really depressed. I was really depressed for a year and I did nothing but play video games. The first Halo had just come out, so she played Halo and a lot of Morrowind and she started to listen to games differently. Maybe I could do this for a job because these games are selling and they need music and sound and maybe that's a career path I could choose. Emily sent her resume to pretty much every single game studio in Brisbane, Australia, looking for work as a sound designer. Uh, one day out of the blue, I got a call to be a junior sound designer for Pandemic Studios in Australia, which was my first job in the games industry. Her first game, Destroy All Humans. Her second game, audio director for Bioshock. Her third game, she was the audio director on Double Fine's Brutal Legend. And then on to Valve. Kind of. She actually retired after Brutal Legend. Bought a condo on the beach in Australia. But she has a curious definition of the term retired. Did some freelancing. I actually went back to university and started studying civil engineering. I don't know, I just love learning, I guess. And I was doing also studying graphic design as well. And I think doing those two things uh, sort of opened up a technical side of me that had been dormant for a long period of time. Leaving the games industry for a period of time allowed Emily to reflect on what that industry is like. I left for Valve before I finished my civil degree. I think like one of the big things I learned from that, which I found was really interesting, was just how much innovation is rewarded in the games industry and how innovation to be in a position in any other industry is really 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 hard like you have to be 60 years old you have to go through like I mean if you're going to design a new bridge for instance to use like a civil engineering case like you don't get to come in as a 22 year old and make a bridge that human lives are going to travel across and be like I'm going to make the coolest bridge ever and just see how it goes that's what it's like in the games industry and to have that to have that freedom to innovate so quickly and just take risks and really not have any downside except maybe you know missing a a ship date or but you know no lives depend on it that was like a huge revelation for me i was like wow it's it's pretty awesome to be in the games industry and just be able to be so, so innovative. And that leads us back to the headset she invented, the floating speakers attached to the VR unit that hang next to a player's ears. 
It's an absolutely mind-blowing way to hear audio with speakers that aren't touching your ears. And that offset placement of the speakers had other side benefits. Heat distribution in VR is very important. So people get very hot in VR, especially when you have a computer essentially sitting off your face. And as soon as you cover up the side of the head, we, we lose a lot of heat out of our ears. So people can get really hot if they have their ears covered up in VR for a long period of time. So for a lot of people, they don't really care so much about the incredible natural soundstage. They were just like, this is great because my ears don't get hot anymore. The headset was finished before Half-Life Alex was finished, and Emily knew the other members of the audio team could use help finishing the game. Initially, she spent time upgrading the Source 2 engine that Half-Life Alex would use to play back dialogue, optimizing it to handle thousands of lines of dialogue. That was like a whole bunch of low-level technical work that I sat down with David White, who's an engineer at Valve, and we just kind of looked at the old way that Valve used to do it since the original Half-Life and sort of wrapped our heads around it and made a bridge to the future, I guess, <laughs> uh, for Source 2. And even being able to, like, bulk edit, you know, if you're in Windows and you can, like, multi-select a bunch of files and, say, delete delete all these files at once, like, having that feature alone was something that we had to implement. Once the Source 2 engine was capable of running edits and tasks on multiple audio files at once, Emily moved on to writing dialogue. She wrote all of the dialogue players hear from the Combine soldiers. I wrote and recorded and directed, like, all the Combine voice work and processed those, and that was probably the creative side of what I was doing on Half-Life Alex. Sound designer Dave Fiza said the Combine dialogue was absolutely great. She did a great job with the VO, really saved our asses there. Because up until she came to us and asked if we need any help, we had no plan for VO. Like, like not a one. The, the only plan was that we'd all agreed that we didn't want to do it. That was our whole plan. processing that she did on the Combine uh, soldiers is amazing. It's so good. That was really interesting because the Combine soldiers of the Half-Life universe are so iconic and I just love them <laughs> so much. In Half-Life, I felt like they kind of made, they were like the stars of the show in Half-Life too, to be honest. The emotional impact of not being able to understand what they say to you was really effective on me as, as a customer of Half-Life 2 because I felt that was really scary. So I just did a bunch of research. I studied up on, on dystopian societies, you know, how propaganda works, how people are controlled through language and, and just, like, how do I incorporate this in, into the things that the Combine say. Composer Mike Moraski said that the work Emily did on the Combine soldiers is one of his favorite parts of the game. You know, the Combine characters have always had this kind of garbled language that you can't really understand what they're saying. But this universe is, is kind of earlier, so they're still kind of human. And so during the course of the game, they, you can kind of hear and understand the things they're saying, which means we can telegraph some mean gameplay meaning. But, like, they slowly but surely, like, 
de- their language decomposes and the sound just becomes so cool. And she told, and that's like, that's a classic one where people are going to be like, the combine better sound like combine, you know, like this half-life thing better be like half-life. And uh, she just totally killed it. Like it sound, they sound, it's one of my favorite parts of the game, actually. You've heard about the creatures and props in Half-Life, Alex. You heard about the Index headset, Combine Dialogue, and Lukulish talked about Steam Audio. The next chapter, you'll hear more from Dave Fiza, responsible for ambiences, weapons, and various UI. He wrote some code to enable certain audio effects and co-created a system to allow for smooth audio transitions as players move from space to space in the game. But for Dave... It really is all about the ambience. So the ambiences is like my, that's like my baby. I, I would have been happy on this project if that was all that I'd done. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I did other stuff, but the thing that I really, really wanted to do was ambient sound. Ambience. If you pause the sound of my voice and listen to the space you're in right now, what does it sound like? Right now, I can hear an airplane taking off, I hear the rustling of the trees in the wind. I can hear a fan running in the room behind me and traffic a block away on Cedar Avenue. And that's just some of what's going on in my auditory world at this moment. That's ambience. If you're in a car, there's a way that should sound, whether it's moving or parked. A kitchen at home sounds way different than a kitchen in a restaurant. What does an empty baseball field sound like? How about when it's full? Ambient audio is an integral part of simulating reality, particularly in VR games, and it's Dave's favorite thing to do. If a game sounds like a real space when you're just standing there doing nothing, that goes a long way towards helping the player feel like they're part of that world. And if you're trying to make a space sound real, there are small details sound designers can add to heighten the player's awareness, whether conscious or subconscious, of the space. When I'm making environmental sounds, if I know it's just going to be like a sound in a gymnasium, right? If I'm not going to reuse that sound somewhere else, but if it's just always going to be in that gymnasium, I like to make small sort of like percussive sounds that I can run through some reverb processing so that mostly what you get is the sound of the space, right? So like... Uh, like some pebbles dropping on the floor is a good example, right? It doesn't make a lot of sound by itself, but it kind of reverberates off the walls. You get a feel for how it sounds. And so kind of like painting the picture of that space. And those kinds of details work really well in areas that are, well, real. But as Alex progresses through the game, she's approaching an area that is decidedly more alien. She's approaching an area called the Vault, which has a lot of alien energy and power around it. Dave wanted to reflect that transition from human to alien with the ambient sounds that surround Alex. The ambience starts off early in the game, sounding very literal. It's very diegetic. Everything that you hear comes from something that feels real. And then as you go through the game, get closer to the wackiness of the vault, there's more non-diegetic sound. The sounds that are coming from the world are affected in some way and they sound weird. 
and just generally it's sort of mirrors that you're getting closer to the, the vault, this source of like all this craziness. The outside world in Half-Life Alex is desolate, kind of wastelandy. For me on this game, the outdoor spaces have been the trickiest so far because a lot of our exterior spaces are pretty sparse in terms of like population, non-combatant population, right? We have enemies and we have the player, but there's not not a ton of spaces you're traversing that have other things going on in them. It's, you know, it's a pretty desolate environment in a lot of it, not not in the whole thing. And so a lot of the stuff that I would sort of lean towards for an exterior space with regards to like, oh, you can hear, you know, distant car or distant plane or, you know, faint people on the street talking, that kind of stuff doesn't necessarily work here. On the flip side of things, I really like nature ambiences, birds and insects and stuff like that. But I don't want to make the place seem too alive with nature. Because again, it is supposed to be sort of like this post-war kind of wasteland and making it seem too too much like, you know, the birds and the bugs are doing well. It makes it seem too alive. Dave created a lot of other audio for Half-Life Alex in addition to the ambiences. He worked on sounds for weapons. He created sounds for all the menus, inventory screens, and whatnot, all the UI audio. And he created a really cool system for fading in and out ambiences as the player moves from room to room or inside to outside. You'll hear about all of those things, but here's a bit of background on Dave. Before Dave started working at Valve, he was at EA, Electronic Arts. That was his first job in the game industry right out of college. So uh, my first game at EA as an intern, I worked on a Lord of the Rings licensed title called The Third Age. The second game I worked on there was a James Bond license called From Russia With Love. On Third Age, I did like implementation and dialogue editing. I designed a few sounds, but not many. I did a lot of like, hey, we have these footsteps and we have 400 animations that all need to make footstep sounds. So go into this tool and put little boxes when the footsteps happen. And then on James Bond, I ended up doing a lot more actual audio work. I ended up doing, what did I do? A lot of the making of Foley sounds and stuff like that. And then Dead Space, a game so scary, I can't even watch a walkthrough. And one of the notoriously scary things about that game is the audio. That was like the big thing I accomplished at EA was making Dead Space. There was this like small, like seven or eight person team that was just starting up a game and decided that they needed an audio person. I was like, that sounds like a thing I would be interested in. And that team ended up becoming the Dead Space team. That tiny little audio that you just heard. That's audio that plays as you move around and select in the pause menu of Half-Life Alex. These are UI sounds, or user interface sounds. 
Dave made them, and he also made the sounds for the weapon selector, the inventory. All those kinds of little little sounds where you want it to do something, but you don't want it to be annoying. For UI stuff especially, I mean, it's kind of true for everything, but for UI stuff especially, I really want to find like constraints for myself. And usually the constraint for a set of UI sounds for me is an instrument or a sound source. So like all the UI sounds for Dead Space were done with that blue synthesizer there, the Korg MS-2000R, which is not an amazing synth, but it's a fine one, but it has like a sound. And so when I start off to do UI sounds, I'll start with like, oh, this is a plug-in that's really been interesting me lately, or this is a synthesizer that I really like and that I haven't really been doing much with lately, or I did all the UI sounds for Left 4 Dead 2, and those are all uh, based off of a mechanical typewriter. So the first thing I do is try to identify like those kinds of constraints. What am I going to use as sort of my, my palette for this? Players hear these sounds thousands of times while managing inventory, navigating pause menus, changing weapons or throwables. There are dozens of reasons to need menus in games, and those sounds are heard often. Dave recognizes the importance of UI sounds, but also understands how kind of tiny they are. My initial impulse is to is to make every sound like a masterpiece of sound. You know, that's like my personality type is I want this rollover sound to be my magnum opus rollover sound. And everybody who hears it will identify rolling over this menu item with this sound. And it will be so for all eternity. But really a lot of times what you need is like a small little click. Dave prefers it if his UI sounds are tonal, meaning his sounds will be familiar within some sort of structure of Western classical music based on whole tones and half tones in patterns that are understandable and or pleasing to the ear. Almost everything that I do has some sort of tonality to it. It's not 100% of the things, but I generally will make sounds that have tonality to them. Even the ambiences? Or are we strictly still talking about objects here? Even ambient stuff, I'm very inclined towards making things have tone, making like room tones tonal, right? And not not all the time, you know, but generally in life, I like when I like hear a sound or I'm like in a space and the space itself has like a resonance that makes me think of like a melody in my head. And so I like to I like to try and sort of evoke that feeling uh, when I'm doing like soundscape stuff. Again, it's not always the right call, but it's a thing I definitely aim for on a pretty consistent basis. So Dave also worked on audio for the weapons in Half-Life Alex, and just like so much in the Half-Life universe, the weapons are a mixture of human and alien technologies. All the weapons are at least in part based on stolen combine tech. And so there is, to each one of them, there is an element of alien technology So all the gun sounds have real gun recordings at the root of them. And then they all have some element of 
of synthesizer in there as well to sort of weird them up a little bit. I asked Dave if they went out and made any recordings of guns to use for the game. We did not do a weapon recording session for this. I've tried to record weapons a few times on my own. So I have a few things in my library that I like. But for this project, since it's not really a gun game, it didn't seem like a good expense to, you know, really shell out for the armor and the guy who specializes in recording guns. Because it's hard. Guns are a really hard thing to record. Guns are hard because they're so loud. The sound for a gun does not exist in isolation. It's just, it's too loud of a thing for you to kind of just hear what a gun sounds like. And it's not interesting anyway, right? It's just sort of a pop. You know, you, you play a game that has like a, you know, a big belt-fed machine gun. And you hear a lot of like really chunky kind of metal-on-metal things happening, which is not really a reflection of reality, but it sounds really cool, which is all that matters. Dave also came up with a program to create smooth transitions from space to space. Like if you enter a house from the outside through a door, as you come inside and as you close the door, the sounds from outside will fade away, just like the sounds from inside the home start to become audible. He calls it the ambient system, and he was originally inspired to make the ambient system when Valve was located in a different building than their current spot. When we're still at the, the other building, and right next to the lunchroom was our internal stairwell, which connected the other floors of the company. And so my office was on the top floor that we had, and the lunchroom was several floors down from that. When it used to be lunchtime, that lunchroom was really, really loud, and I didn't particularly care to eat there most of the time. And so I'd like go upstairs, and I loved the sound of like walking up those stairs and getting sort of this crossfade between the loudness of the lunchroom and the quietness of the upstairs that was based on my movement, right? And so you're walking away from this din and it's becoming sort of more low past and quieter and the room that you're going towards is this quieter space. And I really wanted to, to replicate that in our game. So he created a system where, as the player moves through a doorway, the sounds from the room being entered and the space being exited fade realistically. Now, add a door to the equation that the player can open and close at will in VR, partially or fully, that's occlusion, if you'll recall from the Steam Audio discussion that we had. For that level of detail... For a player to be able to stand in a doorway, opening the doorway as they see fit, Dave enlisted the help of Anish Chandak, who co-created Steam Audio. And so the thing together is you get this really nice feeling of like, you can walk up to this door and you hear a little bit of the outside through the door and then you open the door and you get all the outside coming at you. And as you play with the door, it sort of fades in and out nicely. If you leave the door open and walk back down the hall, you get this really nice feeling of like the outside fading behind you and the inside fading up around you, which to me is very, very cool. It's time to get into the music of Half-Life Alex, composed by Mike Moraski. 
He's composed music for Team Fortress 2, Portal, and Portal 2, Left 4 Dead, Left 4 Dead 2, and Counter-Strike. That's just to name some of what Mike has done during his time with Valve, and even then, that's only addressing the musical things that Mike has done at Valve. The next chapter goes to Mike Moraski and the music of Half-Life Alex. With Mike, it all comes down to the story and how that can be reflected musically in structure, in harmony, in texture, in timbre, all the things that make music music. And with Half-Life, it starts with things that are in between. Everything in Half-Life is sort of this mash of alien, you know, mixed with human. You know, the story goes that Gordon, you know, as part of the Black Mesa research project, um, opens a portal into this, you know, alien universe. And it lets this alien universe in. So you end up with like these alien creatures and monsters and and in Half-Life Alex flora, you know, like all kinds of stuff from the Zen universe is now mixed, right? Combined with the human experience, right? And then that triggers the combine, this other alien species, like notices that thing and they go, oh, this place is advanced enough. They, it draws their attention. So now they're going to come take from us. But the combine, quote unquote combine, their whole thing is that they steal not just uh, resources, but they also steal concepts and, and creatures and things. And they, com- they combine it with their technology, which is sort of this weird 3D printing technology, and create uh, like alternate copies you know so the combine soldiers are part human but part like 3d printed you know combine mechanics right again it's this idea of two disparate things kind of combined together in this weird space and when you think about like the head crabs right they they take over a host and and it becomes this combined thing So the more I looked at it, I was like, oh my God, this whole thing is just this idea of it's in in between. It's like you have two different things that are now smashed together into this one thing. And so I do a lot of musical versions of that where I'm using like quarter tone tuning, you know, and so it'll start out in one set of quarter tone and I'll be playing so that it's it sounds right. But then, you know, as I come down, I'll switch into a different quarter tone set and it just like bends it like just it has this really nice, weird in between. It's literally in between. So if you listen, it'll sound like it's out of tune, but really what it's doing is it's playing with in-between spaces. And again, it's just that idea of two universes kind of jammed together.
Mike's been at Valve for more than 15 years, and he's composed for a lot of Valve games, but not Half-Life. The composer on the first Half-Life, Half-Life 2, and the two episodes was Kelly Bailey. Kelly's music from the previous games set the precedent for what Half-Life music sounds like. I kind of have made this mental list of the key elements that go into a half, you know, Half-Life score, and melody is a really small part of it. And even if it does happen, it's usually superseded or whatever, like by the idea that nothing really repeats. And so there might be a melody, but it's going to happen briefly, and it's going to happen once, and the underlying harmony might not even. A, be there, or B, like, repeat either, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. other than a handful of pieces, there really wasn't much cinematic vocabulary, right? Like mm -hmm. strings or horns or brass, I should say, or any of that kind of thing. A little bit of echoey piano, a la Alien or whatever, right? Also, the early Half-Life scores didn't have a ton of strings or brass or really cinematic orchestral moments. The inspiration for those Half-Life games came from modern music. If you listen to the Half-Life music in Circa 2000, it's going to be, you know, probably crystal... You know, everybody says more gothy like Trent Reznor, but I hear crystal method... Prodigy, a lot of those sort of big beat bands, for lack of a better term, you know, mm -hmm. Chemical Brothers, right? So loopy real drums that are looping and then kind of pulsy subtractive synths with lots of filters and, and then real instruments like guitars and mm -hmm. a lot of distortion. Here's some of Kelly Bailey's music from Half-Life 2 called Apprehension and Evasion. obvious things are you know, the drum loops from that era. You know, it was kind of just late enough in the loop game that you could get whole CDs of drum patterns. Like, it wasn't libraries, though. It wasn't sample sets. It was like, you know, and then you had to load them into recs or whatever, and, and clearly there's some of that in there, you know, um, particularly the classic breakbeats, you know, you know, those things. And then, you know, some some cool bass playing, kind of, again, sort of Pacific Northwest grunge meets Stone Temple Pilots. Here's an example of those drum beats in Kelly Bailey's track called Adrenaline Horror. But then, like, the big ones, though, for me are, and I think always the most interesting stuff, is the kind of ambient abstract pieces that are really electronic and really slow, um, which is actually a really kind of tricky thing to do, where it's like some, you know, pad that's just sweeping super slow, and then there's actually a deceiving amount of complexity in those pieces. This is a track by Kelly called Echoes of a Resonance Cascade from the first Half-Life. 
Mike still wanted to try out some different musical ideas and run them by colleagues before he made any final decisions about what he'd compose for Half-Life Alex. I did some really early experiments when I was just even sort of figuring out if I wanted to be on this project. And I don't do many video things, but occasionally I'll take some captures and just put music to it and see what happens. And it's really useful for sending out to the team and go, A, B, or C. When I did sort of this thing of like, scary situation, here's a pulsy thing, here's a washy thing, here's a sound effecty, screechy thing. And man, everybody's like, if you put that screechy thing in there, like, I won't be able to play the game. Please don't do that. scary. And so I don't know how much additional fear I should be adding, musically speaking. That's kind of why I want to have these things that that maybe add stress or add abstraction, but not horror. Like, I'm trying to keep it kind of more stark is a good word. In Japanese, they have a word which is kakui. And it means it's the opposite of the classic, you know, girls with the crazy colored hair and all that. It's the gray and black and super future looking. And they've dressed that way from forever. That to me embodies it, but it's like their whiskeys embody it kind of. It's like cool, but it's like cool that's stark and simple and and beautiful but in its simplicity and so i'm kind of trying to find that zone project I, I uh, 
undertake. I'm always looking for, you know, my constraints, but I'm also really looking for what are the opportunities for something new. Because I come from this kind of weirdo avant-garde art background, I'm always looking for where's the art that can be done that would make this unique. And what are the standard vocabularies I can use to also make it mainstream? You know, it's that always that, that juggle of trying to figure out how to make something that 20 million people can consume and be psyched about at the same time as being mentally titillated, you know, with something new and interesting and special. You'll hear more about individual tracks from Half-Life Alex, some in fairly deep detail, like the music for the lightning dogs, the music for the blind zombie Jeff, the quarantine zone, the end vault scenes, and of course, more about Mike's musical philosophy about the Half-Life universe. But Mike's background, as he just mentioned, is it's unusual. It's full of avant-garde art and music, and also a lifelong love of computers, coding, programming, graphic design, and animation. He grew up in Bozeman, Montana, where his dad was a professor at Montana State University. Mike started playing instruments and making music when he was young. I started playing music when I was really little, but I was just not disciplined. My parents didn't really understand who to put me with in terms of instructors and whatnot. They just bought me instruments. Like I had a drum set when I was six. We had a piano. I had a guitar that I tuned too high because I was probably four or five and the neck broke. But I kept that guitar. Interestingly, I kept that guitar until, you know, maybe 10 years ago and played it on albums by bending the neck and, you know, banging on the strings. So they're going... But, you know, so it wasn't until I was, you know, a young teenager that, I was exposed to someone being an actual musician, (laughs) like not just having instruments without any instruction. And then he just got really good at guitar. You know, I grew up in Montana in the 70s. So, you know, the first thing that any guitar player would learn would be, you know, ACDC, Led Zeppelin, you name it, all the sort of classic rock stuff. Technically speaking, I guess I'm a boomer, but... Really, I'm like right at the front edge of Gen X. And so punk rock was like a life-changing event in my youth. He played in bands in high school, punk bands, a new wave cover band. Then he graduated from high school early. He immediately enrolled at Montana State University to study classical guitar, music theory, composition, and counterpoint. For a bit, anyway. He ended up moving to Japan for a short time when he was 18 or so and immediately got involved in the avant-garde music scene. But even then, he didn't stay in Tokyo long and moved back to the States. When I came back, it was, you know, the mid, early mid-80s and all kinds of underground music was happening, Butthole Surfers and all of the SST bands and the underground touring networks were sort of just turning on because of, you know, more SST sort of Black Flag and ended up moving with my uh, oldest friend and collaborator, Dale Flatham, to uh, Colorado and 
we were, you know, toying with all kinds of different weird art band stuff. kind of set us off on this path of starting this band Steeple Bathtub that I played in for, you know, the next 11 plus years or whatever. And we progressively made weirder and louder noise rock. We made, what, five or six albums, toured the world many times. And, you know, the United States, I can't even imagine how many laps we did of the United States. Um, Because it was, again, this wonderful period in music where you just get in a van and you go. And there was this brand new network of, of places to play. There's this point in Mike's life, eventually, where he stopped pursuing music as a career for a while. And he did visual effects on a few major Hollywood films, like two Matrix films and the first Lord of the Rings film, The Fellowship of the Ring. He did visual effects for about a decade before coming to Valve. I was always in the computers on tour. You know, touring, you spend a long time driving. And I would just read, like, I, you know, I read every Henry Miller book. I read every possible piece of fiction on tour. And then eventually I started reading computer manuals, you know, um, just because you spend so much time driving. And I just saw that it was the future of production. Like it it was going to be how music was made. Because of the unique structure of Valve as a company, Mike can use his knowledge of coding, animation, graphic design, however he chooses, even though he's quote unquote a composer at Valve. And Valve really works for me in that regard, too, that, you know, like the thing I'm working on now, which I can't really talk about, but, you know, I'm spending more time investigating our animation systems and, you know, and I write a lot of our tools and, you know, so, you know, I can mix things up so that if I get burnt out on the music or whatever aspect of the project that I'm working on, I can switch to something else. This is the music players hear as Alex exits a cargo train right outside the quarantine zone. The train was supposed to take her through it, but the combine shut down the tracks, and now Alex has to proceed through the quarantine zone on foot, an area that's full of dangerous zen life. The moment Alex steps off the train, the dark, heavy, uncomfortable music starts. I knew pretty early on that Uh, this was going to be a fairly big moment. 
once you turn the corner and, and go into the quarantine zone, it's the beginning of the descent. You know, it's it's the beginning of the weird. It's the path to the weird. And of course, there's a path to the quarantine zone, but it really is sort of the beginning of this huge section of the, you know, pretty much everything up until you're dealing directly with the vault, you know, at the very end. this young woman who is going from you know sort of this underground heist kind of related life where they're you know they're messing with the combine and stealing things and whatnot but you know it's not quite so serious whereas you know she's about to go into the quarantine zone where it's going to get really dark and really serious You know, if you look at the very end of the journey, the end of the quarantine part of the journey, you know, right? It's it's this giant antlion battle, and it's got that exact same sound with a different piece of music, and it's way more intense. sort of like these two bookends to the, the the journey through the quarantine zone you know and and dealing with the the zen monsters and the you know all of those sorts of things that come from from that that journey So that was sort of my thought process in terms of the design of it. It's always a trick, um, especially in VR, I found it. I don't know if it was, it's tricky as much as like just sort of this unknown of like, okay, I'm going to hit this with some pretty heavy music. 
but then my tendency was always just then to get out of the way, you know, like to then step back and let the player experience the space. That's where it sort of then dips into these, you know, kind of swelling chords that are both synthetic and and uh, and acoustic, and let it sort of more gently just say, "Hey, this is okay. This is dark, and it's gonna. It's sad. It's like a loss of innocence. You know, here here we go, but more sad and not scary because scary is about to happen anyway. Like you're about to get just assaulted with scary music." Mike came up with a scale to use in Half-Life Alex. It's a mirrored scale, or a palindrome. Mike considers this the G-Man scale, and it sounds like this. And while there's very little repetition of melody in the Half-Life Alex score, that scale and fragments of it, you hear it everywhere. The scale shows up a lot as Alex approaches the vault, the whole purpose of the game. Alex thinks she's about to free Gordon Freeman from the vault, but it's the G-Man inside. And that vault is powered by energy from aliens called Vortigaunts. The Vortigaunts have this chanting thing, and they exist outside of time-space. You know, they, they, they see all time and space as a whole. And they create this energy with their chanting, and that chanting is extracted. And you know, and, and I talked a lot with the writers and with the artists, and a whole bunch of us kind of ended up cementing around that idea that you know the Vort's power, um, their interdimensional power, comes from this chanting, which has history in the games and whatnot.
With all this talk about the vault and the energy powering the vault, it's important to know where the vault is located. It floats above City 17, that's the Combine's headquarters on Earth, somewhere in Eastern Europe. And above City 17 hovers this huge structure that is the vault. In Chapter 10 of the game, Alex is trying to shut down the final substation that transmits the Vortigaunt energy keeping the vault suspended in the sky and keeping the prisoner locked within it. As she shuts down that final substation, the vault comes crashing down from the sky, and players hear the sound of the energy that's suspending the vault strain and change. crash makes the energy within the vault unstable. Gravity doesn't act properly. The ambient sounds from Dave Fiza get less familiar, and Mike's music becomes stranger. When you get into the vault, it then just even just gets weirder, you know what I mean? And it falls apart, and, and these pieces get pulled apart. And then when you finally get to the G-Man, you finally hear like these multiple string parts that are, again, it's, they're strings. They're actually just strings. The strings that play are based on music you hear as you're working your way toward the cage holding the prisoner in the vault in an area referred to as the sideways room or the mirror room. For this area, Mike wrote a musical palindrome to reflect the mirrored visuals. The musical palindrome also represents the reality that time itself is ambiguous as Alex approaches the vault and that she's about to rewrite the future. The musical palindrome Mike wrote sounds like this. Thank you. 
piece becomes the seed for most of the music that you hear in the vault. Mike took fragments of that musical palindrome he composed, and he used pitch bending to reflect the warped nature of time and reality within the vault and the player. When Alex opens the cage that holds the prisoner, a piano enters the musical texture over the strings. That piano brings a cohesion to the chaos of the strings and ties everything together. And that's exactly what the G-Man does. He ties everything together across the entirety of the Half-Life series. Mike uses that piano to symbolize the G-Man. They're playing like off from each other and in a way such that it just really sounds, it makes sense, but it's like, it's like three different threads, which is kind of what's been happening to Alex. And what's been happening this whole time is these multiple different time and, and storylines and whatnot. And as you approach, you know, as you approach the G-Man in the vault, the dynamic mixer brings in this piano part that is actually binding them all together into this piece of actual music. So if you'll recall Roland Shaw talking about making sounds for the Reviver Headcrab, also called the Lightning Dog, Mike's music for this whole area is absolutely spectacular. So here's some of Mike's music for Alex's encounters with the Lightning Dog. When it came to the, you know, the little electric doggy, as they call it, you know, or reviver is the other one, you know, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be so cool on a few different, a few different levels. One of which is that it had fantastic sound design. I just loved that crackling electric, you know, sound of that creature. And so it just had this amazing sound design, which is all this crackling electricity. So it's sitting, you know, in a spectrum sense, kind of in this upper mid to upper range, you know, up there. And I really didn't want to mess with it. But at the same time, the action itself was fairly hectic. And it made me, it was kind of uncomfortable. Um, And I don't mean like in a just I'm nervous, scared way, but it was kind of a little too much somehow, perceptually speaking. And so 
what I really wanted to add like a real metronome, you know, to the to the gameplay. And, you know, the the creature when it infects the host, it, it sort of like gives it a heartbeat, you know what I mean? And so that's where sort of this idea of this like kind of pumping, you know, rhythm came from. It's actually really good as it is. Like the sound design's amazing, the the art's beautiful, but it could use meter, you know, and it could use something that stays out of the way of the sound design. So already I'm kind of thinking, all right, so I'll use you know filters and I'll I'll put some, you know kind of in the low end. I pulled out one of my favorite instruments is uh, the FM7, FM8 from Native Instruments. And it's got this really neat system in it. So you can do this thing where let's say you have a, a frequency beating that's just like wom, 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 like that. You can do one that just goes right on the edge of that and then they multiply together and so what it does is it will change the wave shape right at that edge where it's playing and you can build up a series of patterned modulations in you know in a space and so so i kind of started playing with that and it it sure enough that made some pretty cool sounds I, in fact, I bought uh, an old Korg synthesizer a couple of years ago for Alex just to get the, it has an old um, joystick controller. And so yeah, joystick's kind of perfect for it, right? Because it's got this kind of circular pattern that you can do. So what I ended up doing is creating, you know, four different patterns. So you could be like, you know, you know what I mean? And it's kind of, it's like syncopation, but, you know, for a sick person. Some of Mike's music for Half-Life Alex stands out because of how different it is from the rest. And one example of this is a track called Sunset Vault. I definitely have read a couple places where some players are like, I'm so confused by this. Um, but for the most part, what I've heard, the feedback I've gotten is that I, it does sort of what I was hoping to do, which is give you a breather. Do 
the other thing is just beautiful. It's like the the artwork at that moment is just so pretty, and it like in VR especially, you, it feels like sunset. You know, like you know when the sun is setting at the end of a day, and it's almost like there's a smell that goes with it, which is strange because obviously the sun doesn't smell like anything. But it, it, I kind of really, it really had that feeling to me, and so it was just kind of one of those things. So, you know, we hit this moment where it's this, this beautiful, and, you know, most players probably just go through that section in less than 20 seconds, you know, maybe fit 10 seconds even, you know. But what I did is I put this, you know, kind of ambient music, which, you know, is, again, a, a Half-Life-y thing, ambient music, but to put something kind of beautiful to match the sunset. So if you did want to just kind of stop and take a second, you could, you know, you could kind of chill for a minute because you're about to go do Jeff, which is scary as hell. <laughs> what the hell was that? Oh, that's Jeff. Jeff? The next thing is meeting Jeff. The next whole section is scary and is totally its own weird little universe, you know, like Ravenholm or something. It was its own little universe within the game. And we were super aware of that. Jeff, the blind zombie with a keen ear. In Chapter 7 of the game, Alex spends, uh, give or take, 30 minutes of her journey working her way through an old vodka factory, avoiding Jeff. At one point, Alex and Jeff get trapped in a freight elevator together. When we were working on the, the elevator thing, someone was like, oh my god, we have to have elevator music. Combat music, the stuff that players hear in battle. 
In Half-Life, it definitely has a signature sound. One of the big things of that era is taking a drum beat, you know, that's a sample and a loop and playing it and then distorting it and then putting another drum loop on top of it, right? Which is a great technique, more of a 90s technique, but still that, that infused that early part of the 2000s. So I did a bunch of that really on purpose, but the way I did it instead of just finding drum loops from existing sample libraries or whatever is I would write them on the drum machine, you know, because I love writing drum patterns. And then I could just write the piece and then I would take that and I got two different really specific types of drummers who are, um, one is a really good old friend who's worked on just pretty much everything I've done that has real drumming on it. And then another guy who I just met who is a little more kind of funky drummer jazz, you know, a lot more brushy sticks kind of stuff. And then I would just play them the the loop, get them to to play it, and then do alterations and fills and all that stuff. And then I take that and I smash it and sample it and use it as the source, right? Um, and mix it in. So there are live, there's a bunch of live drums. In fact, pretty much any of those kind of rock combat music pieces. The combat music was all very purposely done that that way in a nod. Again, different than Half-Life 1 and 2. And so I kind of do this in, in a lot of my work where I'm trying to reference something that is familiar, but move it forward into the present as best I can, you know, or in some way that's that's meaningful in a production sense or whatever. And so by, you know, recording drums and then using them as samples. I even, God, I even loaded them all up into contact and pushed keys to play them, which was silly. <laughs> When Valve announced they were making Half-Life Alex, the people working on the game knew there would be a group of fans upset for any number of reasons. Some of which because Mike was the composer and not Kelly Bailey. Let me put it this way, it was a real ch- this game was a real challenge. Like for me on multiple levels and in ways that we haven't even talked about and in a couple ways that we probably won't talk about. Some of the things that we did talk about previously too. You know, it's just it's was a real challenge on so many levels. You know, there's just so so many things that were just so difficult about this project, above and beyond just making a you know a game, which is always hard. 
but that that definitely added a lot of stress and it's not just me you know i think we were all stressed about doing this at all like okay we're going to make a game and it's not going to be gordon we're going to make a half-life game and it's going to be in vr we're you know um we're making a half-life game and it's not episode three it's not half-life three like you know there was just so many big sort of obvious places for people to be angry at us you know you know and a lot of people i think were already you know mad that it had taken us 13 years Valve, one person doesn't make a decision that the rest of the company follows. Some decision might happen because of one person and their idea, but no one person dictates what the company does or doesn't do. It's always a team effort at Valve to discover and execute ideas. During this whole interview, I talk from the first person because it's a much easier way to answer questions like I did this and I did that and I was thinking this and I was thinking that. But you know, Valve really functions um, as a group. It's really common at Valve to introduce an idea and then hope you hear someone else introduce it as their idea, right? Because it means it's, it might be a good idea and that it might have a, a chance of survival. Or if you hear someone mention a good idea, like I definitely make a really big point of kind of forwarding that idea on. And you don't have to like, oh, hey, so-and-so said, you know, it's like the ending of the game was one of our artists' idea, I think. He mentioned in the hallway to the writers and they were like, hmm, can we get away with that? Like, hmm, that's a good idea. You know what I mean? And so on the one hand, it's like, yeah, like I, I can't like I can't take credit for all of my successes. Like it just would be unreasonable, right? Like, you know, any good multimedia product like this is is the result of all these different talents and all you know the situation that you find yourself in and the luck of being there and, and all those things but the reverse is true too right like the decision to do this the way we did it wasn't just me you know there was a lot of people involved and and i was you know sounding everything off of other people you know so there's a certain comfort in that that's kind of like Okay, I think like the world might hate this choice, but at least I have made every possible effort to verify it. My goal is always just to make the product better, not to like make the best piece of music possible or to, you know what I mean? Like not to promote my, my personal uh, investment or whatever in the game, but more just to make the product better.
Moraski, Emily Ridgway, Lakula Shantani, Dave Fiza, and Roland Shaw all spoke about the importance of working as a team to create sound and music for Half-Life Alex. They share a deep admiration for each other and for Half-Life. I mean, I've always felt grateful for working on that Half-Life franchise because that's just, you know, at times I would just have to pinch myself and just be like, I can't believe I get to work on this. Like, this is such an iconic game that influenced so much of my career. I wouldn't have imagined that I would be writing code that shipped in a Half-Life game, like ever. I've worked with a lot of really good, talented people and on a lot of really good teams. And the team for this game was probably the best ever. Let's say tied for the best ever. Everyone on this sound team has been or could be a sound director, you know? like an audio director at a, at a huge, you name it, any company in the world, they would probably be happy to have any one of these people as an audio director. And so it kind of is this embarrassment of riches in that regard. You can trust everybody to sort of, you know, handle themselves at that level. The thing that I'm still wrapping my head around right now is how good the ambience is that, that Dave Pfizer worked on. The ambience that, that Dave came up with for Half-Life Alex is just incredibly detailed and interactive. It's always very rich, but always very appropriate as well. I can't even explain how much of a privilege it is to work with those guys. Like, they're so good at what they do. It just, I feel very lucky to work beside them and you know Dave's sound design is just blows my mind sometimes you know you have Dave who again great sound work really interesting use of sort of procedural slash generative functions to keep the sound interesting and and but not in your face and 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 conceptual ideas that make it like a through thread, you know, something so that it it's aesthetically follows an idea, like I said, from normal to bizarre at the end and, and has this through thread. You know, all that stuff is, again, almost taken for granted, but not. And at the same time, he has completely embodied the sort of open systems that we've we've started really using in full, but the sound system has had for quite a while that's just open. Like anybody can write tools and write ways to use it. And it's made so that so that the artists can expand the tool set that they have. And he just like has taken it to the nth degree. Emily had one of the hardest jobs to do, I think with uh, processing the, the combine dialogue to sound recognizably combined, but bring it up to speed with modern production standards and um, for a lot more lines as well. And I think she uh, she hit that one out of the park. Emily's not-so-secret weapon is that she's just so fucking good at everything. I mean, on the one hand... Like, I'm just blown away by her sound work in Alex. But I'm not surprised, like, one little bit. Like, absolutely not surprised. The processing that she did on the, on the Combine uh, soldiers is amazing. 
It's so good. The other side of it too is that her work on the headphones was like a real, like the kind of quintessential valve success story. You know, she had this amazing idea, which, you know, reasonably there was a certain amount of skepticism around and she managed to push through the skepticism, prove that it's a good idea and tackle the hardest part, which is learn how headphone speakers work, what modern material sciences are and how they function with, you know, and, and kind of put all of those pieces of the puzzle together and not just get it across the finish line, but get it across the finish line in a really spectacular way. Like that to me is like a true valve success story. Roland, he's done amazing work on this game. I've mentioned before his his work on the the physics system, the physics sounds. It's one of those things that he spent a ton of time on, and it's one of those things that I think you people notice if you don't do a good job, and they don't really notice if you do a really good job. And he did a really good job. There's no way I'm going to be able to talk highly enough about the work that Roland did without just listing all the things he did. Roland was, you know, kind of one of the younger recruits and whatnot, but he just so quietly goes about, A, doing amazing sound work, right? Like his ability to take, you know, those legacy sounds and regenerate new sounding sounds, uh, obviously, is an amazing, very difficult skill, like a really hard challenge to, to overcome. When we hire people at Valve, we're always... You know, there's a there's a handful of things we're looking for. You know, Roland just so typifies a bunch of those criteria. Everything he touches or every problem he goes about solving, you know, is done really well. And just in ways that you go like, oh yeah, that was smarter than I would have done. Mike did on HLA was some of my favorite music that he's done in in any title. In the last level, when you get to the big reveal, the music right before the big reveal is one of my favorite pieces of video game music ever. You know, the music in Portal 2 is some of my favorite video game music of all time. I was just excited to hear what Mike what Mike was going to come up with. And there's some music cues at the end of Alex that just I'm just like, my God, like. This just couldn't be more perfect. Like, <laughs> I'm kind of just in awe of my colleagues most of the time.
Thank you for listening to this special episode of Level with Emily. I'm Emily Reese. You can learn more about the audio of Half-Life Alex on our website, levelwithemily.com. On Patreon, patrons of Level with Emily have access to all of the source interviews for this project going back to 2018. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash level. Thank you to Mike Moraski and to Lakula Shantani, Dave Faiza, Emily Ridgway, and Roland Shaw for the conversations, and to Valve for allowing it all to happen. To Nick Marinelli for transcription, and to Nick and also Chase Bathia for listening. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Say hi, Sam. Hi. Levelwithemily.com is made possible by Adam Selvage of Tiki Web Services. Composer Brad Gentle runs our YouTube page. The audio of Half-Life Alex and Level with Emily are productions of June Media Inc.